0: The solution to sin or the capacity for being good is not something that is based in our own energies. It's all given us by God in Christ.
1: Welcome back to the Theology of the Eucharistic Table podcast with Abba Jeremy Driscoll and seminarians of Mount Angel. Abba Jeremy is teaching four of us seminarians how the celebration of Mass informs our theology, a method which he calls Theology at the Eucharistic Table. And we invite you to join us in our discussions. If you learned from this podcast, we ask you to leave a review on iTunes, to like and share our Facebook page, to subscribe to our newsletter at TheologyAtMountAngel.com That's TheologyAtMTAngel.com and to personally invite a seminarian, a priest, a seminary professor, or a close friend to listen to our show. We hope you enjoy.
2: So we are back to the sixth master theme on the moral life, which we already spent one episode, uh, Abba Jeremy and I, discussing this. And now we are joined by Nelson, who has returned to the land of the living. And so a quick recap on what we covered. We began, we introduced the master theme. And one of the main points that we were making in the last episode was to show that when we talk about the moral life, there's a lot of work we've done in order to arrive at this point. So we've talked about ecclesiology we've talked about word we've talked about sacrament we've talked about the trinity and our life in the trinity given to us through christ it's once we've covered all this ground so to speak that we can firmly start talking about what it means to live a moral life a christian moral life Um, so this means there's no shortcuts we can't just start saying that's wrong how do we fix it though this is evil how do we fix that that's sin how do we undo that um, Abbot Jeremy, you mentioned well, Christ has already done something about it. God has already done done something about it. If we want to discern our place in it um, and we ended with a, uh the words of Saint. Leo the Great that appear in the Catechism as well as in your book, and we did, that was our was our ending point for the last episode.
0: One of the things that I think that was good about uh, what we were saying uh, in the last hour was uh, the, how important it is to realize that the solution to sin or the capacity for being good is not something that is based in our own energies. It's all given us by God in Christ. And so that, that came out just rather naturally in the course of our conversation. I mean, that, that was one of the points I made, but I think that point was was pretty clearly made. And, and that's why we finished with this... Uh, Citation of the Catechism. I don't know if you have the book there with you, Nelson. Uh, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So this is on page twenty-three. Uh, that's the uh, well, actually, yeah. I start the the six master theme on on page twenty-one, but that's uh, what we were talking about was all this stuff about how uh, we can. We don't want to start religion. We don't want to start evangelizing by talking about moral questions because people can be good without Christian faith. That's one of the things we said. Uh, But we are all powerless against sin until we are receive what Christ gives us. And so that was a big lesson, I would say. Would you, brother Israel? Mm -hmm. I mean, we got that down pretty clear. So. We started in on the catechism, and in my book, I finished with that citation of St. Leo. I finished the, the seventh theme with that, but I sort of wanted to look at what the catechism, the catechism begins its part on moral theology with that citation, and then it goes on to speak in paragraphs 1693, 1694, and 1695. It's really beautiful because it's a the Trinitarian shape of the moral life. And that's a very vivid example of what I've been stressing, that uh, the reason the moral life in the order of master themes comes after Trinity Mm -hmm. is because moral life for Christianity isn't just vaguely being good. It's a new level of goodness that is possible for us because of the of the renovation of our whole being through the sacraments. And so the catechism, which is thoroughgoingly Trinitarian, uh, opens the whole discussion of, of moral life. It's going to get into specific questions further on, but it's very careful not to start with specific moral questions. Instead, it's starting as, as we've done in this introduction of theology course with How the moral life of a Christian is rooted in the Trinitarian relationships. Listen to this. This is 1693. Uh, It's just in one sentence. I'll just read the first part of the sentence. Christ Jesus always did what was pleasing to the Father. So you've got this son and the Father. But the operative word here for us is did. Did. Christ did. Uh, so he, his, his life, his actual life, is in that sense, it's a model for us. And uh, goes on to say Christ did what was pleasing to the Father and always lived in perfect communion with him. And then it just, that's what Christ did. Now what about Christ's disciples? It says, likewise, Christ's disciples are invited to live in the sight of the Father who sees in secret uh, in order to become perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So that's the, that's the first of the Trinitarian moves. So there's something really wonderful about that, that we see that our own capacity to, to be good will be in the fact that Christ did and lived here in our humanity in such a way that he was doing the will of the Father. This is probably not...
2: Uh, I'm thinking there's a, there's a question people often throw around. What would Jesus do? And it's usually around moral questions or uh, controversies. What would Jesus do in this situation? I, I bring it up because in, in this first line of, the, of this paragraph... Well, we learn what Jesus actually did. We don't have to wonder what would Jesus do. Uh, so the next time somebody asks you, well, what would Jesus do? You can say, well, Jesus did what was pleasing to the Father, lived in the presence and communion with God, the Father. Um, so again, reminding us that it's his doing, it's what he's done that's going to be the starting point. Yeah. we you know, How do I live my life?
1: Another angle, too, with with that question, that phrase, they talk about this at the Institute for Priests of Formation, is how the, the very question, what would Jesus do, is already departing from this emphasis that we are unpacking right now, that it's not primarily, the Christian life is not primarily carrying out the right morals but rather living a life in the Trinity, living a life in Christ, and then Christ living his life in, uh, in us. So to ask the question, what would Jesus do, presupposes the forgetting that Jesus is doing something in us. Mm-hmm. So it's not what would Jesus do, but rather what is Jesus doing? That would be the better question. What is Jesus doing in me, with me, through me, in this moment, not a hypothetical. If Jesus were here right now, what would he do? No, no, right. he is here. As if he were. not What here. does he do? Yeah. yeah. Right. And as you were talking Abbott, I, I also thought, thought, thought about a book I'm reading by Michael Casey. You recommended to me a book by him before. I don't think it was this one. This one is called, I think it's called The 72 Tools for Good Living, something uh-huh. like that. It's his reflections yeah. on... I believe the fourth rule of, of St. Benedict. And he, I don't have the book here with me, but the way that he talks about, he talks about the commandment, be perfect as the heavenly father is perfect. And the, the very impossibility of that commandment implies that we can't just work our, work our way up to living that commandment. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, uh, that's got to be Christ living in me. Mm-hmm. You know, in some sense, what you're saying, you know, that what would Christ do if he were here? No, he is here. So the question becomes, what is he doing or what will he do? But this also does bring up the issue uh, that Christ living in me expects me to use my own wits. So, uh, and to, so it's not Christ magically lives in me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Christ is living a unique life in me, Mm -hmm. living in me uniquely uh, different from the way he lives in others in communion Mm -hmm. because he creates a marvelous communion. But this is why the circumstances of my life now. I want to, if you if you ask the question the wrong way, what would Christ do? You would want to say, "Well, we wouldn't have any idea because that's that's kind of like going back to the historical Jesus and imagining him here." You know, I want to say, he, you know, Jesus never had to live in the twenty first century. This is this is different. This is hard. <laughs> He's living in the twenty first century, not now as the historical Jesus of Palestine, but he is living in the twenty first century in us." Mm. And so that's a that's like a new shape of Christ a new a new challenge, if you will, of the Christ life yeah. in the history of humanity. We have our moment, and we have to really live it alive and faithfully. And like I say, each one of us has a unique relationship. But what's the key there then? Uh, this is what the, 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 the paragraph I just read from the Catechism. I am going to be, because Christ lives in me, he is going to give me the energy to always do what is pleasing to the Father. He is going to give me the energy to live in perfect communion with him. And when I do that, then I look at my world differently. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I act differently in my world because I am in love with the Father's will because Christ lives in me. You see how that works? Mm. We're not facing the specific questions yet, but we're being sure that we have the right kind of energies moving in us.
1: What is the... Sorry, go ahead, brother.
0: Well, I thinking
2: of that when we read the passage from St. Leo that, that starts this section in the Catechism, and one thing, he says, recognize your dignity, but then he says... Remember who is, what is it, who, who is your head and of whose body you are a member. There's almost a, he doesn't quite say this, but he's saying recognize, remember that you are Christ now in the world. Uh, that almost scandalous mere identification we have with Jesus, like what he's done to us such that we're now his body.
0: The next, the next paragraph in the Catechism says that, uh, sixteen ninety four. It says, "Incorporated into Christ by baptism, Christians are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, and so participate in the life mm-hmm. of the risen Lord." And uh, that you guys will recognize that citation: "Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus." Mm-hmm. That's from Romans 6. That's where we got derailed, remember? <laughs> uh, and we talked all those weeks about baptism.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, well, that's it. We were talking about this kind of renovation that is achieved in baptism. So uh, then, this 1694 stresses even more what Brother Israel just said. We're incorporated to Christ. We're dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. Uh, mm-hmm. We, You know, when we were talking about that baptism, text. We said this is this is really how we live resurrection, with uh, not literally having died biologically and risen again, uh, but instead having died to sin and living our new life. And the, the new life we said that you know, when we were talking about it is the moral, moral term. term. It's the moral life.
2: I'm thinking, you know, because. I think it would be really easy to say, well, I've been, I've been baptized. Christ lives in me. Um, and even if I'm a sinner, at least Jesus loves me. At least God loves me. But I think, again, that forgetting the fact that the way in which Jesus lives inside of you is not. And I think that, you know, the liturgy reminds us that Jesus doesn't live inside of us in a neutral way. He lives inside of us in the way that he destroyed sin on the cross in the way that he overcame death at the resurrection. So to really say, I am the body of Christ, to really say God has loved me, means to be, to show Christ in that way in your life. Christ is destroying death. Christ is overcoming sin. Um, Guys, I'm still trying to, I'm, I'm still wrestling with that. You know, we say, you know, God, Christ is giving us the, his own energy, his own power to overcome sin and death. And so my question is like, well, how does that happen? Um, I think that's still where I'm, what I'm thinking.
1: Yeah. And that maybe as a way of answering that, Father Abbott, the question I was going to ask a moment ago is, what is the what is the role of the liturgy here? I re- remembered Dr. Fagerberg's lecture to us. and. <laughs> He I think it was there. I had also heard him speak elsewhere before. Maybe I'm conflating the two, but at one point I heard him say that he I remember him using the example of Mother Teresa and Mother Teresa going out and seeing Christ in others. And that didn't just happen. She didn't just one day will that to happen. She didn't just wake up and say, Okay, I'm now going to to walk around the world and only see Christ but rather rather I think he used this word that it was as if she was born in a state of um, oh what what is it the <laughs> one if we don't um, if we can't see well um, my is it my myopia myopia yeah um, myopia myopia and through her encounter with Christ in the liturgy, over time her myopia was corrected so that she could go around and see and see Christ in others. I may, if Dr. Fagerberg ever hears this and if I'm representing mis- misrepresenting his position, please forgive me, doctor. But yeah, so what maybe maybe I said too much. So, what is the role of the liturgy and how does Christ live in us?
0: Well, you know, it, in one sense, we could answer it uh, relatively briefly by just saying, well, that is what the five previous master themes were for. And that's why, you know, that's why we're talk- talking about uh, moral theology here. Uh, the role of the liturgy is in effectively to incorporate us into Christ. It, it, it gives us an encounter with God in Christ, more precisely, uh, in the communion in the Paschal Mystery, which is in fact the death and resurrection of Jesus and our communion in that. The death and resurrection of Jesus is death to sin and resurrection to new life. It is the uh, communion in the life of the Trinity. So it's by, by it's by all the. One of, the, one of the themes we have for the liturgy is that we're encountering God mm-hmm. there in Jesus. And so it's, the, it's, the, it's this personal encounter with God, that's what changes a person. So that I, God comes to me as God with all this love which is his very being. And when I am in touch with that, I really can live differently, and I forget why, but we were earlier, maybe it's this, yeah, uh, we were looking at Leo's text and we paused on the word, remember. Leo says, remember who is your head and of whose body you are, remember? And I said something to to the effect with Israel. Uh, Yeah, that's the problem. What if we really did always remember that? You wouldn't be able to sin. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't be able to sin. Like when we do fall back into sin, that is nothing less than forgetting uh, who we are. Uh, and we slip back. And it's possible to. I mean, Leo is well aware that it's possible why he's exhorting, don't slip back. Uh, and the way you won't slip back is by remembering. So, yeah, you ask, how does the liturgy fit in? Liturgy is remembering. It's, it's very structured is remembering. It's anonymous. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah.
2: So then even that remembering, uh, I don't know if Sam would have done this on purpose, but even that remembering is not a vague remembering, you know, you sit down and close your eyes and say, all right, I'm going to remember. No, it's a very active encounter. So the, the uh, isn't that weird that when you remember God is there. Yeah. In the liturgy, that's exactly what happens. I mean, it's a normally when you remember other things, you remember something that's not present, it's present in your mind. Mm-hmm. But when you remember in the liturgy, when the liturgy remembers God, God is there. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah,
0: you, you know, know, Mother Teresa Nelson, uh, she had the practice not only of uh, celebrating the Eucharist very deeply, but also of adoration and meditation before the blessed sacrament i think Mm -hmm. i don't know the details of the of the actual practice in her order but i think they all have a holy hour before the exposed sacrament before they hit the streets Mm -hmm. and so you see that sort of link between deeply penetrating the mystery Mm -hmm. of, of christ's presence in the eucharist and then going out that's what enabled her to look at the people that she was ministering to and see the presence of Christ in them. Yeah.
1: There's, a, there's a great story about that. I'm, I imagine historians are going to bicker over this, over whether it happened this way or not, but her sisters were complaining about the length of time that they had to stay in prayer in every morning because it was too long and they, there was a lot of there's a lot of need out on their doorstep. There are people that needed to be served and poor that poor people that needed to be fed and sick people that needed to be healed and so forth. And so they were saying, Mother, do we really need to pray a whole hour every morning before after after Mass? Can we can we pray a little bit shorter length of time? And Mother Teresa, the story goes, listened, thought for a moment and said, Okay two hours <laughs> Uh <Uh-oh.
2: laughs> that's a you know going back to Dr. Fairberg's comment uh, that you know we're born with my- myopia is that mm-hmm. the pronunciation myopia it reminds us that it's not not so much that our eyesight is good and our eyes tell us that Christ isn't in everybody who's baptized that stops us from you know living a life of grace, to living in the grace of Christ's life, but rather that our eyesight is bad, that we can't actually see well, that if we actually saw properly with the eyes of Christ, we would see him acting, living his life in the church and its members, so that there's that, cor- there's that need for correction. We all need glasses. Um, and that's what the liturgy is, kind of building our pair of glasses for us, giving us eyes to see aright. Because um, sin, I remember we read this, this great book in, at a table last year for Lent on the crucifixion. And she, Fleming Rutledge, has his chapter on sin. And she does a good job of emphasizing that sin isn't just, I do something bad um i do something wrong she does a great job of emphasizing the aspect like the the personal aspect of sin so that the person sin seems to be personified but also that it's a force that it sort of has touched everything so it's not so much there's like a little smudge on my windshield my windshield is broken cracked and dirty Um, like a more foundational problem i could throw a lot of water on that windshield it's still broken you know it needs to be fixed um so also when we talking about maybe sin, I think that's another useful thing to remember, that it's not a particular thing that's gone wrong. It's the whole of who we are has been touched by something that's broken us down. And that's what Christ is taking care of. is taking care of. Did take
0: care of. I don't know.
2: That's another thing that these texts bring out when we talk about what it seems to be we're in a of what Christ has already done, but somehow he's already doing it. He's still doing it. And, and so it's finished, but it's not. And we're somehow in the middle of it because it's not finished in us. So hi.
1: Yeah, there's an, an answer in, a, in apologetics from Steve Ray. He talks about, you know, if somebody ever comes to you to evangelize and says, are you saved? The, the proper Catholic answer is I was saved. I am being saved and I will be saved. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I have the same question for the abbot How, how do we unpack that?
0: Uh, how do we, what? How do we unpack that? Well, it seems to me that that's more or less how we've been talking. We find ourselves talking about what Christ has done, you know, that's what we, that's what the church uh, meditates on. That's what we contemplate. We remember him. Uh, We remember what he's done. We remember his death and resurrection. But as we contemplate that, we, you know, somehow we say, well, what is it? What's it mean? Uh, And though it happened then, It touches me now. How does that work? And one of the ways it works is quite actually it touches sin and death in my own life, not just in my own personal life, but in the world now when I'm alive. Because uh, uh, this this world that we live in, the, the battle is still underway. That's what the whole book of the apocalypse shows it, you know, that the, it, it, it's definitively won by Christ. And yet Satan is furious and, and mysteriously has still some power. And so our, our life now is such that it can be as much afflicted by sin as the human race has always been. Mm -hmm. So somehow that's what we who are alive now need to be released from. And that's the, that's what I was saying earlier, the unique way in which Christ lives in me. He never had to live in the 21st century until now, but he is now living in the 21st century and in our very difficult world. And so he said, he is a force in us Christians. He's meant to be. uh, And, how do we understand the world now part of the way we have to understand the world now is as a battle between good and evil but we go into that battle not with our own strength mm. which would not win <laughs> we know that yeah. so but we go we do go into the battle and we go into the battle mm. strengthened By the life of Christ within us. And that's a kind of confidence and hope with which we need to live our lives. But actually, when the rubber hits the road, we have to do that in the very concrete ways that the church, through her members, is involved in all sorts of very dramatic kinds of scenes, all the way from, you know, big projects in the world to to bring about more just and equitable situations, to the secret life of of good Christian families just quietly living a good life, or the secret life of monks also trying to live that, all of which is a force in the world against the satanic powers of division. So that's all going on right now, and it's a big drama. And drama means you don't know how it's going to end. And so, yeah, I have been saved. And will I stay saved? Maybe that would be the question for now. Mm-hmm. Will I stay saved? I am being saved now, like that was well put. Will I stay saved? And I live in hope and confidence that I will stay saved. But I have to I have to move myself. Just stay saved. I'm not just you know receiving this kind of strength from Christ is not passive only, even though it's all a gift from him. It's not a gift that that works if it's received only passively. I have to really let it transform the kind of man I would I would otherwise be you know I, without Christ, I would be a completely different person. Mm-hmm in the world. I'd have all my DNA and all my characteristics that sort of passed down to me through the generations of my ancestors. And I'd live in the world and it would be a completely different life were I not in Christ. And then actually, history would be different with me alive and not in Christ. And that's true of any one of us. I mean, maybe not dramatically different in ways that we could trace, but everything that every one of us does that's the whole
1: world. <laughs> okay, so I know we only have a couple minutes left and maybe it might be worth it to come back here next time, but I'm wondering so we've spent <clears throat> a lot of time in rightly so talking about what the foundation is for moral life for the moral life and what it actually is, I, I mean where it comes from and and as it maybe as a summary that it's not us doing it, but it's Christ doing it in, in us. And I know, and that that's what needs to be repeated again and again and again. And we're writing saying that usually we come to the moral life from the wrong angle, or maybe better said, we come to the Christian life from the angle of the moral life. And so it's, we can't stress it enough that that's the wrong angle that we have to do something else. And etc. The question, it still begs the question okay, so now that we have that foundation, what is the moral life, or how do we articulate the moral life? Because we do have a rich tradition of moral theology, and we do have specific sins that we try to avoid, we do have a we do have a catechism that talks about the evil of certain acts. And so what? So what is the bridge be- between those? What is the bridge between understanding one's foundation, understanding the foundation of the moral life being life in the Trinity, to what does the moral life look like?
0: Yeah. Well, I think that... <clears throat> you know, you- and since we talked about this, Brother Israel and I, the last time we met, right at the beginning, he gave a good introduction by reminding uh, me, reminding us all, that I always said <clears throat> in my class, remember this is an introduction to theology class. It's not a class about the liturgy. It's not a class about Christology. It's not a class about Trinitarian theology. It's locating all of those themes, and, and we didn't get into the material, and something true is similar of the introduction to theology and where it places moral theology. So basically, the question you're asking, Nelson, is the content itself of the specific discipline of moral theology, and what's it look like? It looks like, it looks like everything, and it's all of life. All of an individual's life Mm -hmm. and all of the church's communal life and the whole of humanity it looks like what ought to be the case Mm -hmm. and one of the ways I put it in the book I'm just going to read that to you it says the middle paragraph on page 22 it's sorry I keep uh, coughing here Um, it says the consequences of all this all this being everything we've talked about for the last two hours Mm -hmm. all right or or the consequences of everything we've talked about in the previous five master themes. So the consequences of all this carefully thought through around every conceivable dimension of human living in every actual set of circumstances, which characterizes every epoch in which Christians have lived or are living. This is the magnificent heritage of Catholic moral theology. Okay, so that is a huge topic. There's massive materials Mm -hmm. through the centuries and here and now of moral theology. And uh, I don't think in in this podcast we can go into that. Uh, I'm not prepared to do that because uh, this is not my area of specialization. But I know that I belong to a community of the community of the church, but also the community of theologians, where this is discussed by some. And my contribution to the discussion is uh, clarifying these foundations. But the work itself, I mean, obviously, I'm doing a very broad thing. Uh, every conceivable dimension of human living. Actually, the church's in her tradition has spoken about anything you can think of. <laughs> we uh, we, we have about thought it. about it. and everything that's coming up now yeah. we are thinking about it uh, but that's going to be good and useful thinking if it stays close to these foundations. So I think that's um, yeah, I mean does that make sense to you Nelson? I mean that's basically uh, where we go from here we're, we're to specific questions, and then you go, wow, that's a very complicated question. I'm going to have to rely here, is the way I would proceed, I'm going to have to rely here on somebody who's thought about this a lot longer and harder than I have. And that's, that's why I read books, that's why I listen to other people, that's the community of theologians and the community of the church. Yeah, Um,
1: what came to mind was what you said earlier, Father Abbott, about remembering, about anamnesis, how that's what's happening, how Christian life is remembering who we are, who, who created us, and so forth. And tying that to an adage that I heard once about every Catholic being born every Catholic is born two thousand years old. Max. So there's a lot but when we're born we're not born with all of those two thousand years in our consciousness, if I can use that word here. Rather we have to remember those two thousand years. Hence the study of, of theology, the study of the tradition. And the study of the moral life. And so to say, well, what is, you know, if there are any specific questions, and I I would imagine that there are listeners that have specific questions. Well, what about X, Y, or Z?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it might be, I found it really unhelpful when I was first wanting to learn about the Christian life and wanting to live as a Christian when I wouldn't get when I I wouldn't be given concrete answers. And I think there's some merit at times because the foundation needs to be everything that we've been talking about. But I also wanted to know, Oh, is it wrong to do this? Mm -hmm. And so to be able to have um, sources and we have such a gem in the catechism. And so we can look at the catechism as not a way of receiving strict rules which is sometimes how it it gets dismissed but rather a way of remembering who we are as catholics who we are as baptized christians who we are as beloved sons and daughters of god who we are as ones who have been swallowed by the holy trinity and are continuing to be thus swallowed remembering what that is and what that makes us that is the study of the moral life, the study of the catechism and so forth. What do you, does that, does that work?
0: Yeah, for sure. It works. I mean, we do, uh, we do have to face actual questions all the time. And, uh, you know, we need to, we need to prepare ourselves to do that. And we, that's when you turn to the sources, certainly the catechism is a source. Um, good thinkers are a source, uh, Magisterial teaching is also a source. You need to think of something pretty big, like Veritata Splendor uh, of, uh, of John Paul II, You know, a whole encyclical uh, with a lot of moral guidance in it. Yeah. Other, many other encyclicals do, the whole body of Catholic social teaching, amazing body of magisterial teaching facing practical questions. Uh, On and on it goes, you know, war, bombs, money, uh, medical issues, uh, experimenting with embryos, abortion, uh, euthanasia, everything. (laughs) So those are very complicated questions. And yet, we don't shrink from them. We are facing them. and. Where's the strength for that come from? That's given us by God. We really you know, and then the culture hates us for it many times. I mean mm-hmm. so that's all part of it. That's the that's the that's the battle I was talking about. Yeah. We should not be surprised that we should be hated for weighing in. Wow. And that's you know, don't get me started on that you know, separation of church and state doesn't mean that we, that we as believing Christians cannot weigh in to the public questions on anything, you know. That's right. not bringing my faith to bear on questions. Well, who me? We? Uh, of course, I do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, anyway, yeah. listen, I got to go.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Theology at the Eucharistic Table podcast. Remember to leave us a review on iTunes, which helps those who are searching for content similar to ours to find our show, to like and share our Facebook page, to subscribe to our newsletter at at TheologyAtMountAngel.com, that's TheologyATMTAngel.com, and to tell your friends about our podcast, especially the seminarians, priests, and seminary professors whom you know. Above all, We ask you to pray for us seminarians, priests, monks, and professors at Mount Angel Abbey and Seminary and to take the content from this episode into your own prayer. Until next time.